Okay, uh, we got some handouts. Pass them out here. Anyone need a handout? Would you mind passing? Thanks, brother. <clears throat> so last week, uh, we discussed chapters 17 and chapters, chapter 17 and 18. And by the way, if you've missed any, you can always listen to the audio of some of the previous teachings in the church website, or even in iTunes. We're also on iTunes uh, under Faith Baptist Church of Orlando, so you can catch up with any that you might have missed. Um, today, we actually conclude our series on the book of Judges with the last chapters, chapters 19 through 21. This is the last one, so this is goodbye to Judges. Um, for the sake of time, though, we won't be able to read all three chapters straight like we usually do. We'll read the passage, and then we'll expound on it, but um, that's three chapters, and we, because of the time, we won't be able to read all, all of it through. Um, but just keep your Bibles open um, as we look through some of the verses. Again, it's going to be chapters 19 through 21. And on your handout, you'll see I divided it in three themes, one for each chapter. So the first one is the guilt of Benjamin, which is chapter 19. We're going to talk about that. Uh, the destruction of Benjamin and Israel, which is chapter 20. And the sorrow for Benjamin, which is chapter 21. So let's go ahead and uh, talk about the first theme, the guilt of Benjamin. Now, as we get into the final part of the book of Judges, it's important to note where we are in the story, in the overall story. At this point, Israel's history, or at this point in Israel, Israel's history, we've seen a decline in the nation's obedience to God, and has become quite evident. At first, Israel as a people often fell into idolatry and under the judgment of God, but when God hears their cries... He would rescue them and would raise a judge to lead them into peace for a short time. But once their judges would pass away, they would fall back into disobedience. And that was a cycle. Now, at this point in the story, Israel stopped seeking the Lord and God had given them over into their ways. And this is where we are in the story in chapter 19. And the chapter 19 begins with a statement. You'll see it in the first verse. In those days... When there was no king in Israel, et cetera, et cetera, signifying that Israel was in a state of no guidance as everyone did what they wanted to do and what was pleasing in their own eyes. The story in chapter 19 starts with a Levite sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem. By the way, a concubine was a female who voluntarily enslaved and sold herself to a man primarily for sexual pleasure. And concubines in the patriarchal age and beyond, they did not have equal status with a wife, or equal status with you know, what, a, what a wife would be considered um, to have. A concubine could marry, I'm sorry, a concubine could not marry her master because of her slave status, although for her the relationship was exclusive and ongoing. So it was still a relationship, but she was not considered in the same status as the one that the man was married to. She was sort of a second-class wife, so to speak. Uh, Sometimes concubines were used to bear children from men whose wives were barren. Concubines in Israel possessed 
many of the same rights as legitimate wives without the same respect, making them a second class to, wife, to wives. And in the second verse of, of, uh, of chapter 19, we see that this concubine was an unfaithful woman to him and left him and fled to her father's house. Now, whatever their issues were, we see that the Levite had compassion for her and even waited four months for her. And since she didn't return to him, he went out to get her back. He took with him a servant and a pair of donkeys, maybe as an aim to persuade her to return to him. When he had arrived to her father's house, the father welcomed him with great joy. Now the writer seems to depict the concubine's father as a man of much hospitality. He welcomed him in, um, and you see verse after verse, he offered the Levite food and drink and constantly asked him to stay at night. You see that in uh, verses 6 through 9. I'm going to put it up here. Can someone read verses 6 to 9? If you can read that. Now the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law and the girl's father said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here, for, lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. Yeah, so I don't know how your in-laws are, um, but in comparison, he was very welcoming, very nice, very hospitable. And it's interesting how the writer of this passage makes clear of the kind of warm hospitality that the Levite receives from the father-in-law. Yet we'll see, as the story goes on, a major contrast in hospitality. So this is nice here, but we'll see how things change later. The story goes on as the Levite gains his concubine back, and they decide to finally leave the father's house, and they travel on together, and they discuss where they should stop next. And we uh, see this in uh, Judges 19, verses 11 through 15. I'll put it up here. Can someone read that, 11 through 15? read it. Yeah, so here, just kind of going back, we see this dialogue with the Levite 
and his servant on where they should stay next. So they're traveling back home. They got to stop somewhere and they're deciding where they're going to stay. And what is interesting is that the Levite rejects his servant's idea of staying in the city of the Jebusites because he didn't want to go into a land of non-Israelites. More than likely, he figured he wouldn't be treated with the same kindness or feel welcomed in the city of foreigners. So the Levite decides that it would be best to stay in the next town of his, uh, of his own people. And so they stopped, they stopped at Gibeah, which was a town of the tribe of Benjamin, which was an, another Israelite tribe. Yet notice in verse 15 that when they got there, no one took them in. In other words, they expected to be welcomed by their own people, but as evidence of the way things have been going in Israel, we see that they thought wrong. And fast forward, we see that finally an old man came and offered them his place to stay in. And this old man was a resident of, of Gibeah. However, <clears throat> he wasn't a native. He was originally from the tribe of Ephraim, which might explain his hospitality. And here is where the story sort of takes a dark turn. Uh, let's read in verses 22 to 26. <clears throat> Whoa. Someone. Uh, back up As they were making their hearts merry, there you go. Behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may go in. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said, No, my brother. So wickedly, since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them up now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. The man would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine, uh, the man seized his concubine and made her lodging. And they knew her abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house, where her master was, until the Yeah, so <clears throat> this gets really dark, but they stay in this man's house, the man who was very hospitable. Um, and it even says in, in the first verse, verse 22, that their hearts were merry. So they were, they were having good fellowship. But what we see next is, is very similar to the incident in Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. I don't know if you remember Lot and his guests. <clears throat> Men of the city surrounded Lot's house at Sodom asking for his guests. Same thing's happening here. The, the account is almost identical. Um, they, these men, it says here, uh, worthless fellows surrounded the house beating on the door and they were asking to bring that man out. Now, I just want to share a few thoughts about what we read here in Judges. <clears throat> Some commentaries make note of the contrast between the author's description of the man of the house, right? They describe him as an old man. And the people who surrounded the house, you see sort of in contrast, they call, him, they call them men of the city, worthless fellows. Sort of as a contrast that expresses a new kind of morality that has taken over, a new Canaanite ethic against the old normative Israelite ethic. So you have this old man, probably, you know, used to the, thing, the way the things were back in the day, 
And then you have this contrast of, the pe- uh, of people of the city, quote-unquote, uh, worthless fellows. This is a, sort of a hinting a contrast between his way of doing things and the way that people did things nowadays, so to speak. And this is why we see in verse 22 that while they were enjoying pleasant fellowship in the house, these men of the city, worthless fellows, surround the house beating on the door, like slamming on the door. It was a loud and abrupt interruption of peace by a people of new morality, showing the change in the society of Israel, a moral decline. And this contrast is seen even more as the story goes on, right? These men say to the old man, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And and, And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Now, a quick reading of that verse may cause you to overlook a few things that are going on here. Why would the old man consider it a vile thing for them to know the man who is staying in the house? Well, I'm sure you've already figured out that the term know isn't referring to getting to know someone in a social, friendly way of meeting and getting familiar with someone. The term know here is the same as it has been used in previous books of the Bible. It's a term that is often used to describe sexual intercourse. For example, Genesis 4.1 says, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, her son. So what we see in Judges is a gang of men from the city who surrounded the house and asked that they may bring out the old man's guests so that they may have, they may have intercourse with him. Now, this was a crime in two ways, in many ways, really, but in two ways specifically, we see, first, their request was, it obviously violated sexual norms, right? These men have come to commit a perverse homosexual act. And second, their action violates customary norms of hospitality. You see, that's why he was saying, no, you know, I brought this man in here, don't, you know, he's sort of my responsibility, don't come in. And do this to this man. On top of that, how does the old man of the house respond? We see in verse 24, he says, Behold, here are my virgin, here, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems to be good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. And that's what they did. The old man grabs the concubine from the house and brings her out. And the men of the city rape her and abuse her all night. And it says, until the morning. That's what it said. And the verse says that they did not let her go until the morning. So this was, this was serious. This was a big, uh, this, was, this was one of the worst forms of abuse and, and rape. We see not only the corruption of the men of the city, but if you look and you dig deeply and you just start pulling out all the ways that this whole situation was corrupt, we even see the corruption in the decision-making of the old man by offering his own daughter or the concubine as an alternative to the rape of his guest, the Levite. And this is what it means when the chapter begins by stating that Israel had no king. Israel did what was good in their own eyes, that which is natural to them as fallen humans. They were making moral decisions, if you will, 
as complicated as it, as it looked, he was making a moral decision. You know, who, who, who should I give up? Should I give up uh, my guest or should I give up the concubine or even my own daughter? And to him, his decision was, well, not the guest. And, you know, it, it seems like he was protecting his honor, in a sense, over his own blood, you know, giving up his daughter or, or the concubine. There was some decision-making there that was a moral decision, uh, yet you see that it was, uh, what he's decided was still corrupt in a sense. No one in this story is exempt from this corruption of the heart, right? All of the characters here are sinning in many ways. Each character demonstrates corruption in some, some way. For example, what was the Levite doing the whole time? After all that time of trying to gain his concubine back after she left him, all of a sudden she is given away without a fight to ruthless men. And the corruption in the old man's compromising offer ought to be evident. Offering up his own daughter or his guest's concubine out of concern for his honor as a host. And as a result, we see that they violated this concubine so bad that verse, 20 says, says, verse 26 says, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. So she probably crawled her way back to the, back to the door in hopes to, be, to find security in this house, and, and there was none. She fell at the front door, um, and that's where she stood until it was light. Let's continue the story, and we read in verses 20, well, let's read verses 27 through 30. Can someone take that? Who saw it? No. It's all good. Thank you. Yeah. I remember reading that at home and I went, I just closed the book and I said, okay. <laughs> what am I going to do with that verse? But, um, yeah, this part is, is very difficult to swallow. Here we see the, the Levite opening the door in the morning, right? Remember, she fell at, at the doorstep, and she stood there till the morning. And here you see the Levite opening the door in the morning, ready to head out. Like, just totally said, you know, whatever with the concubine. He just started walking out, ready to go home. The verse says that he went out to go on his way. That's what it says. <clears throat> As to show that the Levite was already determined to move on from the incidences that happened the night before. There's no description of feelings towards anything that went on. He just seemed cold and concrete. And as he stumbles on her at the door of the house, he says, this is what he says, he says, get up and let us be going. Just cold. <laughs> but she did not reply, right, signifying that she was dead. 
So she died from the abuse and from the rape. The Levite puts her on his donkey and he just goes home. That's it. Now what does he do with the body? The passage says that he takes a knife and he cuts, into, into, cuts her into pieces, basically, and sends her limbs, her parts, throughout all the tribes of Israel. Verse 30 <clears throat> says that all who saw it, they said, something like this has never happened in Israel since we came out of Egypt. <clears throat> in other words, Israel has come a long way since, since the beginning. And not in a positive way. You see how things really got bad. <clears throat> and this was, the res- this was the result of a departure from the Lord. Um, and this is what you see, chaos <clears throat> and corruption in, in many levels. Now let's look at the second point in the handout. Yeah, sure, please. Um, this story is so full of important points that you can't miss it. Please. First of all, the last time concubine was was brought up mm-hmm. was when um, Gibeon mm-hmm. and his concubine mm-hmm. and Abimelech was born. That's right. And that's that's kind of the sign that something's going to happen here that isn't good. Right. Jephthah's daughter. We're talking about the old man's daughter. Mm-hmm. The last time a daughter was brought up was tied to Jephthah when he sacrificed. That's right. His daughter because of his vow. Right. And this old man is, in a sense, made a vow about his daughter. Right. Going back to chapter 17, um, the Levite, Micah, hmm. was going from Bethlehem to, Eph- to, to, to the hill valley of Ephraim. Huh. This guy's not a name, going from Ephraim to the hill valley, uh, to, to the hill valley of Ephraim to. to uh, Judah, of, uh, Bethlehem of Judah. Right. The, the, the idea of everyone did everything was, which was right in his own eyes ties back to Joshua 24 mm. and pretty much everything that's been said in Judges. Right. And, and the whole point of this whole thing is how this cycle has gone down. Right. It's all tied to the history of what's happened. Yeah. Amen. And uh, this, the, the, the thought of slicing it up into 12 parts. Yeah. All of Israel is responsible. Hmm. That's 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 kind of the message. Wow, that's 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 great. So um, it sort of it sort of signifies the responsibility falling on all all every tribe. Everybody. So right. yeah, that's is, great. Are you, saying, are you saying that the Levite is was trying to send that message in his act? Um, I don't know what the Levite was trying to do. The Levite's name right. is that's every man. Yeah. So he's committing the sin. The sin is on everything. That's on the people. Yeah. Yeah. That is good. Yeah. Great. Okay. So uh, let's go into chapter 20. And that's the second point here. The destruction of Benjamin and Israel. And here we begin. We we begin to see the manifestation of God's judgment on Israel. Beginning with Gibleah of the tribe of Benjamin and Israel as a whole. So. From verses 1 through 11, we see the unity of Israel in a sense. When after everything that has happened with the Levite and receiving a disturbing package of a human body part of the Levite's concubine, they decide to gather and listen to what the Levite has to say. And we'll see what he says to all of the tribes. Um, Let's look at verse 4. 
I'll put it up here. Verse 4 through 7. Can someone read that? <clears throat> and the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to, to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin. I and my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They met to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her to pieces and sent her throughout all the, con- all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed the abomination and outrage in Israel. Hmm. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. Yeah, so here the Levite gives his side of the story. And he also reveals why he sent them all a piece of the concubine woman. It was symbolic to show Israel that the Benjamin place of Gibeah rose against him and violated his concubine. And uh, as we continue on, verses 9 through 11 show the decision that he, uh, that he made or that they made in this meeting. You'll see it in, in this next passage. 9 through 11. Can someone read that? Thank you. It's, it's interesting to read about the unanimous decision to go to war against the tribe of Benjamin. So Israel's unity, which we, we see they're sort of united in this decision, is both impressive and tragic, right? It's impressive because we read in verse 11 that they were united as one man to go to war against Benjamin. Yet it's a unity of Israel against Israel, right? A tribe that was within that was part of the tribes of Israel. So they were out to bring war against a tribe that was one of theirs. Uh, even during their war against them, as, we read, as you read through this whole chapter, Israel constantly refers to the Benjaminites as brothers three times. Let's look at some verses. Uh, verses 12 through 13. I'll read it. It says, And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the, tribes, uh, through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Here's uh, another one, verse 23. says, And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening. And they inquired of the Lord, shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, go up against them. Verse 28, another example, says, and uh, I guess it's pronounced Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, minister before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, go up for tomorrow, I will give them into your hands. So it's a sad thing for Israel to go up against their brother, 
And we see through these verses that much weeping was done in the midst of the war. However, they felt that Benjamin's wrong could not be ignored. We see that the battle begins on a tragic note with Israel asking the Lord, who should be the first to go up for the battle against brothers? In which God replies, Judah first. You see that in verse 18. Benjamin seemed unbeatable, winning the first two engagements. You see that in 18 through 23, and then the second in 24 through 28. However, by the third encounter, Israel came in destroying 25,100 men and was defeated that day, or uh, Benjamin was defeated that day, in which we see in verses 29 and 30, through 36. Now, in all these setbacks, we must wonder, what is God doing here? Why is he allowing this? What is his plan with all this that is going on within these chapters of them going to war against each other? For starters, we read in verse 35, it says, And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. This is significant, that God was active and present in all of this, meaning that Benjamin's defeat was the manifestation of, of his judgment, of God's judgment upon Benjamin. Now, we know that Israel was not at all any more innocent than Benjamin was when it came to sin, so we ought to ask, if Benjamin received judgment from God, then what about Israel? Were they exempt? Did God just pick a side? Well, we see that even though Israel won the victory in the battle at the end, Israel did suffer two losses. And this may have been a form of judgment from God towards them. However, we do see for the first time in a long time that Israel finally called upon the Lord for guidance, even if it was about the war against their brother tribe. So in, in theological terms, Israel accessed divine guidance. Israel sought means of grace, so to speak. And on the contrary, there was no mention of the tribe of Benjamin receiving direction from Yahweh. Regardless of it all, in conclusion, when we see this war going on, God still accomplished what he willed. And any, any, any good at all depended on his own mercy and kindness. So uh, God used this situation to accomplish his goals. Um, it was determined that, that Benjamin would fail and that Israel would, would win. Uh, let's look at point number three. Can I just say yes. something about Phineas? Sure. That, that, that's important. Phineas. Phineas, okay. if you remember, um, in, in, in Numbers, when the Midianite women, the, the Baal worship of Peor, mm-hmm. when the Midianite woman and the Israelite were essentially joined mm-hmm. in marriage, right. Phineas slayed both of them. And this averted a plague that was going on Israel. The next time you see Phineas is in, I also think it's in Numbers. The next time you see Phineas is actually when he's in battle. Hmm. He, he's kind of the warlord. He's hmm. the one who's doing justice. That's why, that's why his name is yeah. called out there. Hmm. Very he's good. the one that's doing justice. Very good. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Okay, so the sorrow for Benjamin. So in this last point, we get into the final chapter, which is 21. And uh, here we see that the literary theme changes dramatically from Israel destroying Benjamin 
to all of a sudden feeling sorry for Benjamin. Right? They went to war against their brother tribe. And now all of a sudden it changes a little bit and they're feeling sorrowful for uh, going to war against Benjamin. This may be the first time in history where we see a nation actually feeling sorry for the opposing country after going to war against them and winning. But here we see that Israel weeps after the win. They begin to grieve for Benjamin. But this wasn't simply feeling sorry for the opposing group. But they were realizing how tragic it was that they went to war with their brothers. And as a tribe of God's people, they became devastated that one tribe was now missing out of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Look at verse 3. I'll put it up here. Never mind. Just look at it on your, your Bibles. Judges 21.3 says, And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? Verse 6 says, And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. So it's a sad day. Uh, Verse 17 says, And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Now that last verse, verse 17, shows that apparently Israel intended to eradicate Benjamin, to wipe them out of the planet. They even swore not to give any of their daughters into marriage with a Benjaminite. You see that in verse 1. Their hopes was that even if there were any remaining survivals from the tribe of Benjamin that they would not have wives and would not be able to procreate, and as a people, they would go extinct within a generation. However, at this point, Israel lamented and their grief intensified because even though they now wanted to revive and preserve Benjamin, they can't break the oath that they have already made. This was an oath to to not give their wives uh, to these people. They didn't want to break that oath, yet they still wanted this uh, tribe to survive. So Israel came up with an idea. They remembered an oath that they had made with all the tribes. The oath was that any of the tribes who refused to send their troops to fight in the battle that they just had against Benjamin, if they refused to send troops, we're going to put them to death. That was the oath. And they remembered that uh, Jabesh Gilead, that they didn't send any troops. So here, Israel thought, we can just fulfill that oath, kill them, and take from them any young virgins. And and they did so. And when they did so, they only got 400 girls, (laughs) which were not enough for the survivors of Benjamin. So they kidnapped some Shiloh girls at an annual festival where girls from Shiloh came out dancing in the vineyards every year. And so we see that the tribe of Benjamin takes the girls as wives and rebuild, they rebuild their towns and continue on with life. We see that in verses 23 through 24. Can someone read uh, 23 and 24? Chapter 21. And the sons of Israel 
Thank you. Yeah, so what are we to take from this chapter or even, even the previous chapters? Um, I think we ought to notice something that is very much a human tendency, which we, we can see in Israel throughout all these chapters. That is the, inconsist- the inconsistency of their morality. Right? In one occasion, we have the Levite compassionately pursuing his concubine, even after the scripture says that she was unfaithful. Next, we see his failure to defend her when the men of the city want to sexually violate him, yet he passively allows them to abuse her, leading to her death. These are inconsistencies in, in morality. We also see many ethical problems in that situation with the old man rejecting the violation of his guest, but offering his daughter or even the concubine. Later on, the Levite reports this to all of Israel in a disturbing manner by sending his concubine, uh, the, the body of the concubine's parts into all the tribes. Yet on the flip side, the war that he begins seems to be a righteous war. They war against a city that in many ways was a new version of Sodom and Gomorrah. But then we see regret on Israel's behalf of going to war with a fellow tribe. Yet, the way they restored the tribe of Benjamin had all kinds of sinful and ethical problems. It was in many ways contradiction, contradiction in ethics, um, inconsistencies in morality. We see faithfulness to oaths, but murder and kidnapping as a, as a solution to keep their oaths. This was, this was a mix. This was a mix-up. And in many ways, and this is where we, we ought to identify ourselves with Israel, uh, from a close-up view, each one of us, apart from Christ, apart from Christ lived inconsistent lives, right? Uh, think about yourselves before Christ. Um, claiming to love, we often acted in self-interest, right? One minute we are moral, next minute we are rebels. We thought we were good when we complained against others who break the law of the lands, but we fail at our own made-up moral standards. This is a problem not only in Israel, but of all mankind. And we see that throughout this account of, of Judges. And this was a problem with Israel. If only they obeyed God's commands perfectly, they would have not gotten in such deep and complicated sin issues. But that's just it. Because of original sin, gained from Adam, the first man, they're inclined to sin. And they're inclined to get themselves in these kind of sinful and ethical inconsistencies. And so are we. Therefore, we see that Israel's problem isn't found in their behavior ultimately. Because even when there was a judge who, who would rule over them temporarily and their behavior was checked, they were at heart still idolaters and sinners. Israel's problem was the problem of sin from a corrupt and fallen heart. That was their problem. And their, their problem continued on, even after many judges came and left. So, even though the book of Judges ends in chapter 21, their problem is an ongoing one, and still is for many people today. We read in, in the last verse, verse 25, that's the last verse of, of, of the whole book. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the moral of the story there. 
This was the problem with Israel and all its complicated and mixed up sin issues. They were their own Lord and therefore did what they thought was right in their own eyes. And if we zoom out and see things from a big picture perspective, you'll realize that this continues to be the problem, not only for Israel and the Bible, but for anyone today who assumes that peace is ultimately obtained by earthly means. Every earthly king has and will fail in its attempt to bring world peace because it doesn't deal directly with the ultimate problem that man has. And we see that the ultimate problem that Israel had was sin at heart. And that's our problem today as well. So, for example, when you set your hope on new presidents or new governors or even new policies, you set yourself up for disappointment. Now, this by no means implies that we shouldn't strive for better policies or choose better leaders for our countries. In fact, I think we should, especially as Christians, since we have the glory of God in mind. However, we must not see any of that, right? Presidents, policies, we we must not see that uh, as the ultimate solution, as mankind's ultimate solution. Mankind's ultimate solution is Jesus Christ and him alone. Only he can deal with the bigger problem, the deeper problem. He can transform a sinful heart and ultimately bring forth a new heaven, a new earth, in which sin is done away with. And at that point, we would be a people ruled with a perfect king, with no sin, with the king of kings, Jesus Christ. So, in conclusion... As we close the whole uh, series of Judges, my hope is that you have at least taken with you the theology behind the whole book. That the failures of Israel in the book of Judges are so significant, right? We've seen just crazy examples of sin. Um, and, And these failures, these sin issues, ought to be so significant that they urge us to long for a hero in the story. One that will never fail, right? And and we see towards the end that they become a people cut off from God and only left with private religion and personal ambitions. And yet God, at least in the bigger picture, in in the grand scheme of things, God won't tolerate seeing his people destroy themselves. Right? This is where the gospel comes in. He doesn't let the world be this way. The victory belongs to God in the end. God won't tolerate seeing his people destroy themselves. And the lesson to be learned is that the people of God are never beyond the reach of grace. And as the story goes on, even after Judges, you'll see how God provides from the line of David, King Jesus, the true king and the true judge. So as for us, never has there been a book that mirrors the flaws and even the sin issues uh, that the church had in history. We We can look at the book of Judges and we can, it's, it's a great mirror uh, to see some of the flaws that we have as a church and even in some of the flaws in church history that the church has faced. And yet God uh, still has a plan for the church. Uh, God is still preserving the church um, and uh, offering his, his grace through Christ Jesus. Um, so with that, may, may the Lord use this book uh, to show us our great need primarily 
and also our great hope that's found in Christ. Again, the, the whole thing is a pointer to that great hope that we find in, in Jesus Christ. So any, any comments uh, on that? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I wouldn't doubt that the Lord in his providence uh, just allowed that to be in that, that order, just the theology that's behind it, all sort of pointing to Christ and his coming. Um, that's just amazing. Yeah. And to this day, the Jews cannot see that. Right. And they continue with that order. Yeah. And yeah. they basically end with the promise of their history. Right. Not the promise of a Savior. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Very good. Anyone else? Thoughts? Comments? Okay. Well, let me go ahead and close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this book, Lord. <clears throat> this book that is often uh, overlooked and often not preached from. It's a hard book, yet we know it's divinely inspired, and we pray that it had, ser- it had served this purpose in our lives, Lord, and we Continue to, to just ask you, Lord, that you would um, help us to continue studying it, Lord, in our own time and, and learn more and more about your grace through this book, the book of Judges. So I, I personally thank you for what this book has done for me as I studied and prepared for it. Thank you for the brothers who've commented and, and just shared good insight um, just to help us to see this, this great picture that you've painted here in the book of Judges as it pointed to Christ. Um, and we... I thank you personally. Words can never describe the blessing and the privilege that it has been to teach uh, through this book. And so I trust that your word will not return in void. May continue to build me and and build your church as well. Uh, We thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thank you.